Hi, and welcome to the Classroom to Clerkship podcast, a five-part series about transitioning from the classrooms of medical school to the wards and clinics of the medical school clerkships. I'm your host, Lauren Kutcher, a fourth-year student at UC Davis School of Medicine. Along with my classmate, Maya Viavant, I will be delving deeper into the best ways of going from the book and lecture-based learning that is so important in the first two years of medical school to the patient and experience-based learning that is so important in the clinical rotations of the third and fourth years. This transition is challenging and can sometimes, well, oftentimes, seem daunting. But we are here to tell you that this big step can also be fun. And by sharing our knowledge and the knowledge of others with much more experience, we hope to give medical students, no matter where they are in their journeys, some insight into the process of going from the classroom to the clerkships. We will be talking to several different colleagues, from attendings to residents to academic learning specialists to classmates, and all of the people that you hear from will provide unique views on learning and growing in this wonderful field of medicine. Our goal was to discuss four major questions and themes. One, how do you learn best in clinical medicine? Two, do you remember teachers who were particularly effective? Three, do you have study techniques that you think students would find useful? And four, do you have any methodology for keeping track of things that you've learned? We often veered from these themes and elaborated, since the main purpose of this podcast is to hear stories and learn all that we can from some amazing master educators. And now, on to the podcast. In this episode, episode one of the series, we will be talking to Dr. Paul Aronowitz. Dr. Aronowitz is a bit of a legend here at UC Davis. Not only is he a renowned hospitalist and medical educator, but he is also the host of his own podcast, Mountain Lion, the very podcast that is bringing you our program today. Maya and I sat down with Dr. Aronowitz, and what follows is our enlightening conversation. Okay, so we'll just delve right into it then. Yeah, sounds good. We're here with Dr. Aronowitz, and... Wanted to start off by asking, when and how did you become an educator in medicine and in, in general? Uh, I think I fell into it a little bit uh, in the sense that one of the things I most enjoyed when I was a medical student was teaching other medical students and teaching members of my team, you know, if I was on, for example, internal medicine or pediatrics. And then when I was an in, uh, an internal medicine resident, I actually found that um, my favorite thing was bringing articles in and teaching the team about things I've learned in articles. Um, and then going to morning report, of course, was always fun. And then I ended up staying in the academic milieu for a couple of years after residency. And I think that sort of locked it in. My favorite thing to do was to teach. And then all my decisions about my career after that became based on are, you know, it was basically a question of, are there learners present in that place or that environment, or are there not? And if there weren't, I tended to kind of put that job opportunity lower on my list than the other jobs. Hmm, cool. Were there 
certain people that taught you how to be a teacher and an educator? Did you just did it come naturally to you? Uh, I don't think it came naturally. I think that uh, there were people I was exposed to early on. For example, as a well, going all the way back to fourth grade, my favorite teacher of all time was my fourth grade teacher. My second favorite teacher was my sixth grade teacher. And they had a lot of the attributes that we would all recognize in great teachers. Um, so they didn't like stimulate me to want to be an educator. But I think then when I got into the um, area of medical education, of being educated as a resident or student or what have you, it was just being around some of the more I guess, inspirational type people who really got into taking a student under their wing and spending time going over an oral presentation or having a resident stop and teach me something at the bedside quickly, despite the fact that they were totally stressed out and super busy. And I think they kind of inspired me to try and be like them and to take pieces of them and incorporate them into my own sort of toolbox, so to speak. So back then, can you remember certain things that, or certain teachers that really stood out to you that you still think about? Besides your fourth grade teacher, your second grade <laughs> I mean, teacher, back or then, what they you, did? Yeah, like when you were in residency or as mm-hmm. a student. So I can't talk about my fourth and no, fifth grade. No, please. I actually teacher. think that's a, that's a great idea. If they had some skills, that would be. Well, they they did. I mean, my fourth grade teacher was named Dorothy Bodner, also known as Dot Bodner was her her nickname. Um, and she was a super, super enthusiastic, funny woman. She had red hair and she had freckles all up and down her arms. And she had this way of just keeping everyone engaged with her enthusiasm. And I think the other thing about her was you just got the feeling that she believed you could do it. She believed in you. Like I was not a great student in elementary school, junior high school, or high school. Um, and to the point where my guidance counselor told my mother that I should apply to trade school <laughs> when I was getting ready to graduate from high school. Um, literally, that's how <clears throat> little of an impression I made on my, <laughs> on my uh, guidance counselors. But anyway, so, so Dorothy Bodner was just like really great, and approachable, fun. And I think it was that fun part that also, you know, kind of got made me hooked me a little bit about learning and teaching. And my sixth grade teacher was this guy named Austin Bentley, who actually drove a Corvette, um, not a, a Bentley, but he, that was a bad joke. But he, he, um, he was this guy who treated us, like even though we were sixth graders, and he was this guy who's probably in his early 40s or something, who treated us like colleagues. It was very interesting. Like if we did something bad in the classroom, we felt like we had let him down. And he didn't like dwell on it or anything like that. But he sort of treated us like co-learners with him. It was very interesting. And I kind of learned a ton from him about education and how you should treat learners in order to convey to them that they're responsible. It's not just about you, the teacher. It's about them taking responsibility for their learning. So I think so they were really were two very inspirational teachers who I think about all the time when I'm mm. teaching. And then I think in the medical world, um, I had some teachers when I was a, a third-year medical student who were, again, particularly enthusiastic about the material and just sort of seemed to have a deep love of talking to patients. Like 
my favorite teachers consistently through medical school and into residency were the ones who enjoyed spending time at the bedside. Um, and the ones who liked to teach but didn't like to go to the bedside just didn't make as much of an impression on me. Mm. Yeah, I actually think that's, that's a, a theme that we've been, or I've been noticing, um, and just a theme that I've seen throughout my time in med school is that the people who teach the best and um, who I learn from the best are people that show me and and enjoy spending time and with the patients and just being a good human, not just reading out of a book. And um, I, th I think that translates not only the enthusiasm part of your teachers from um, elementary school and middle school, but being an enthusiastic um, as a third year and finding people who are enthusiastic about what they do because if somebody else is excited, you're excited. Um, and how, how do you think people can find educators and people that can take them under their wing in, in third year so that they can have those kind of experiences? Um, I guess that's kind of, I've, that's a question I've never thought about before. I think that some of it is a little bit of luck, you know, that, you know, that sort of right chemistry that a student bonds with a certain teacher. Um, uh, it's sometimes the subject matter because maybe you're going to feel that way more if you're enthusiastic about OBGYN and delivering babies more than you will taking care of a 90-year-old nursing home patient on internal medicine or something like that. Not, that's, not that that's advertisement, not that that's all <laughs> we do, but um, but it may it may have to do with that. So some of it's the, the, the subject matter. I think in terms of... Um, being, falling into those things, I think a lot of it is about students just having an open mind and being flexible about learning um, and sort of keeping their head, you know, you sort of tend to be down your little rabbit hole and sort of popping your head out and looking around and, and appreciating the good teachers that are around you. It's not, you know, it's not impossible. Occasionally you find yourself in a situation where you look up and you're like, I don't really want to be any of these teachers, but then maybe you rotate to the next clinic or the next clerkship, and you're like, oh my god, I want to be all of these people. You know? yeah. So it is a little bit fortuitous when you stumble across those teachers. I don't feel like it was like a huge number of people I was exposed to in medical school. But you remember school. those. But, yeah. you, but they stand out, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, where I did residency, we didn't go to the bedside. It just wasn't part of the culture. And... Um, and I look back on it, and like the thing I enjoyed most was going to the bedside with the residents and the students, and that just seems like such a loss because there were so many excellent clinicians where I did my residency, but they rarely went to the bedside. It was usually conference room rounds, so mm -hmm. they just trusted us that we would pick up on the physical. Th I can't. It gives me. I get it's like cold sweats thinking about <laughs> all the things that I missed when I was a resident and a student that less so when I was a student because we tended to go to the bedside more, but that I probably missed. I probably missed hundreds of patients with clubbing, for example. Yeah, so what is it about going to the bedside that, that makes it easier and better to learn? I think that it's the relevance. Mm -hmm. It's like this is a human being who's sick in front of us, and how can we figure out what's wrong with them, step one, in order to help them, step two. And when you go to the bedside and you present in front of the patient, you talk to the patient, you kind of 
frequently patients correct things that people, when students or residents are presenting and you know they always get a little embarrassed by it the presenter does but the patients are always fine with it and i think it's great because it's like that's why we're here so they can kind of make sure we're not playing telephone all day long and that they can get things on the right track so so i think it is that relevance thing lauren that um probably stands out the most if it's relevant to patient care you want to learn about it more mm -hmm. and you're seeing it right in front of you or hearing it if they're telling the story or telling yeah. the history so one of the things that kind of joins those two ideas to me is that you were talking about students can get kind of bogged down and it's hard to sort of see the big picture and it's hard to appreciate good teaching and what's going on around you. And I feel like sometimes for me, going to the bedside is where that that relevance is just brought to life and you, you immediately are pulled out of whatever sort of, you know, it can be really hard to be a third year. You're trying to figure out what to do. You're trying to impress people. You're trying to not step on anyone's toes. And I think as a learner, that allows you, when you go to the bedside, you're like, oh, this is about this person. This is not about me and whatever's going on outside. It's really about patient care. And it's not just in a book anymore. It's um, something you can actually see and remember. Mm -hmm. I remember my patients. I don't remember things, you know, straight from a page of a book. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it's probably, I've never thought of it this way before, but it's probably also... <clears throat> changing the hierarchical structure mm -hmm. by its nature because the hierarchy at the bedside becomes the patients at the top of the food chain or the mm -hmm. pyramid because you're standing around the bed and there they are, you're talking about the patient and talking to the patient. If you're in a conference room, the food chain or the, the hierarchy is the attendings on the top and you've got your resident and the interns and the poor third year medical mm -hmm. student way down <laughs> here. Um, and I like that when you go to the bedside that gets flipped around a little bit yeah so it kind of allows you like your sixth grade teacher to make everyone feel a little bit more like colleagues mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. that's really true actually what other what other ways do you best learn clinical medicine um, besides i mean going to the bedside and looking for it um is there a way that you like to like to practice your skills and um how you become better at for example listening to a heart murmur um so that's the so you asked a couple of questions yeah two questions <laughs> lots of questions um, one is kind of how do i learn medicine uh -huh. the best and then i guess the other one is how do i perfect my skills which are kind of which one would you like yeah, me you to that. take yeah. on <laughs> should i answer the first one yeah, first both of them yeah, okay. first one's first yeah i guess in terms of learning and i think this is sounds a little trite maybe but it is teaching i mean to teach things, you have to have some semblance of knowledge about those topics. So I find that um, to teach something, I have to kind of make sure I'm pretty close to having it right. And sometimes I do get it wrong, and then I get corrected by a resident intern or medical student, or I look it up later, and I'm like, holy cow, I got it wrong. I have to email the whole team and say I got it wrong, which is, which is not terrible. It's not a bad thing to admit when you're off about something. It's good role modeling, actually. But I think the teaching part is huge. And I don't know if anyone else you've interviewed thus far for your project here has talked about the sort of the pyramid of learning. And at the top of the pyramid are lectures. And that's like a small. So picture the point of a pyramid being a small thing. It's sort of the tip of the top of the pyramid in terms of what you retain when you, when you learn. Like it's like 3% of what is lectured to you, you actually retain. 
So then you go down the pyramid and at the bottom of the pyramid is teaching. And that's like 90% of what you teach. It sounds weird that you'd forget 10% of it, but I think I forget more like 40% of it. And I retain about 60% of what I teach, which is not bad. It's much better than 3%. So I think it's the teaching part that, you know, by teaching, you know, looking things up and coming back with things or quickly finding an article and reading the article and then sending it out to my teams or whatever, that's where I learn the most. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what tends to stick. I think the other really, really key thing, and everyone says this when you go into third year, um, but I think it takes years to totally appreciate this, is if... It's something about a patient that you're seeing or discussing that you go look up. Um, that tends to really be the stuff that sticks. I can tell you about patients. Like most of the patients I took care of in my, we had a three-month medicine clerkship actually when I was a student, and which was too long. But <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you about most of the patients, like what their diagnoses were. I can tell you about the woman with C one A esterase deficiency who got in, transferred into a medical center. The woman with asthma. The man with congestive heart failure. Um, because that was the clinical milieu, and I looked things up about those patients and remember them. And I think the other part of where I learned, and this is going to sound probably a little bit strange, um, but maybe you guys have had this experience, is when I disagree with a consultant. Mm -hmm. um, or, uh, and it's usually not somebody on the team, because it tends to be more of like a conversation. But if a consultant recommends a treatment that I don't agree with, or I don't know about, um, or I'm not so sure about, that I have to go look that stuff up, that really sticks. Because it, mm. it's sort of almost like a little bit of internal conflict. I'm yeah. like, are we really doing the best thing for this patient? Yeah. I mean, I can give you all kinds of examples where I've, I've mentally, not always like verbally, but mentally disagreed with a consultant or said to the team, Huh, that's an interesting choice. Why not this? Why not choice A or choice B? Why did they choose choice C? It costs more. It's riskier. It might not cover the organisms that you know this patient with an infection needs mm. to have covered. So I find that I've over the years that that's the area I really know well. It's when I had to go to the literature and look it up. And you know what? I find I'm wrong about fifty percent of the time, and mm -hmm. I'm like. That's a smart consultant. <laughs> but then I know more about it. And then the other 50% of the time, I'm like, yep, I was right. That's probably not what the literature says we should be doing in this situation. Mm -hmm. And that sticks. And that sticks. Yeah. It, it sticks kind of a long time. Yeah. Engages like a kind of problem solving in your head where you have to have a discussion with yourself. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it stimulates your, it's your curiosity. It's the curiosity thing. I think people who are, and I guess this would be a key thing for, rising third years to know is that it's that curiosity thing too because if you're curious about a patient's disease or a patient or something you tend to be more like on edge about wanting to find the answer even if you never do find the answer or even if the there's you're still in that uncertainty phase where like there's three possible diagnoses and they all seem to have something going for them but it's the curiosity thing too and even if it's something totally obscure that you've just decided to look up, I think even those things are, are I've had the experience of looking them up and be like, oh, it's actually pretty, pretty relevant. And now I remember those things better than any, mm -hmm. any other thing that I've, that I've looked up. 
Um, what else? What else can third years or any year really, fourth year intern year residents um, do to ignite that curiosity and follow through on it, not get bogged down in the day to day sort of the tedious work of third year? Well, I, I think in any learning any <clears throat> skill, whether it's computer programming or, you know, how to carve wood or anything, there, there is an element that's going to be tedious. So by definition, learning and acquiring a craft that you haven't done before or haven't developed expertise in, there's going to be a certain element of repetitiveness and, and, and tedium in it. And so I think some of that's unavoidable, but I think in terms of making sure that a student's maximizing, or resident or intern, maximizing their learning um, as they're in training um, and beyond, really, because we're all, we're all learners. Um, it's sort of thinking about, because as I said, you tend to learn the most when it's pertinent to a real live patient. And it, you, that could be morning report, too. I mean, the learning at morning report that I've gotten personally, I mean, I go to morning report whenever I can because it's about real patients that were seen by my colleagues, by you know the residents, interns, and students. And <clears throat> I tend to learn a tremendous amount there. But I think the thing I would say about maximizing learning is and, and stimulating that curiosity aspect is thinking of the patients as human beings. I mean, that sounds like, oh, well, that's why I went to medical school. I didn't go on to treat a log. I don't, I'm not, I didn't go to veterinary school. I'm not going to treat parakeets or something. Or, you know, um, but if you're thinking of patients as being real human beings with lives that they've lived to date, um, I think that's another good way to stimulate that curiosity. Like, frequently when we go to the bedside, one of the questions that will throw everyone off in the team that admitted the patient is, and I'll be like, what is this patient's occupation? Like, I'm always really curious about that. Especially you look at their hands and they have a little osteoarthritis or, you know, they're very, you know, skin is, looks like they've been out in the sun a lot. Like if it's a farmer from the Central Valley or something. Uh, if somebody's homeless, you can sort of tell the second you walk in the room because they just have a much more weathered look to them. Um, so I think that um, it's it's getting at those little things that sometimes we forget to ask them. We get so focused on their diseases and such that we forget that they have lives, like how many kids they had and, and uh, you know, what kind of work they did or are doing. And, you know, and they, and they kind of tend to light up because most people like to talk about the work that they do. Now, if they're unemployed for the last 20 years, sometimes they don't like to talk about the work that they do because they haven't been working. But, but lots of people who've been out in the workforce, like it's a huge part of their, their identity if they were an accountant or a teacher or something like that. We went to see a patient last week uh, that I was observing one of the residents for this elective that I teach. And, and I just, it was so funny the way this patient was responding to her. I just, I was like, this woman must have been a teacher. She had to have been a teacher. And sure enough, she had been, uh, I think it was like an elementary school teacher for like 42 years or something mm -hmm. crazy like that. But it was just so obvious in her demeanor. Mm -hmm. So so I think those kinds of things. Uh, and it helps you become a better observer as you as you pursue your curiosities about patients. Because if you walk in the room and think, oh, this person like looks like they were in the military, just the way they're answering the questions and going along with everything, I'll bet they were in the army. 
and then you sort of ask them, were you in the military? Because that's another question we rarely ask patients. And, and partly because I worked at the VA for three years, but um, I can usually peg who was in the military and frequently I can figure out the branch of the service they were in, you know? <laughs> um, not always, I've been wrong lots of times as my teams will tell you, but I think it's that curiosity. I think that makes you a better physician too, because I don't think we listen to patients enough mm-hmm. or talk to patients enough. And that's almost the beauty of being a medical student and you know, the beauty of being a doctor, but especially a third year med student where your job is to listen. And I mean, you have to learn and you have to study and you have to pass your shelf test. But at the same time, there's never going to be another time really where you get an hour to just sit with one patient and learn all about their lives. And I know I've seen my colleagues run around thinking they have to figure out the exact right diagnosis and, you know, whatever test, but our job might actually just be to listen. Yeah, I think I think third year and fourth year to a certain degree provide that opportunity that you know it's not lost as you go, but it's just you, things become much more frenetic as you kind of get out beyond medical school. Um, and obviously, if you're working in a clinic where you, I don't know if there's clinics where you guys rotate where you see a patient every twenty or thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. That's a little more limited, but I think, for example, when you're doing, you know, inpatient peds or inpatient internal medicine, you know, you, if you kind of disappear for 45 minutes to go talk with your patient, nobody's gonna yeah, notice, <laughs> right? No, nobody necessarily notices, and you come back with all this. Oh, did you know Mr. Jones was? You know, he drove a truck up and down through the Central Valley, and maybe that's why he has coccidiomycosis mm-hmm. in his lungs right now. So. Yeah. Kind of curious because what I'm hearing is that you know the best way to learn may to actually be to sort of take the pressure off of yourself to worry about the best diagnosis and think more about patient the patient him or herself and have a little curiosity and a little more openness to kind of uh, exploring this patient as a person. Do you think you know our System, the, the way medical school is set up doesn't necessarily reward that or it doesn't teach us to do that necessarily. We have to kind of come to that on our own and there are some teachers who may reward that. But at the end of the day, every eight weeks, you have to take a shelf, you have to mm-hmm. you know, pass and there's a lot of pressure on people to study, study, study. Do you think there are systemic things we need to change about the system of teaching mm-hmm. and education we have? That is a great question, um, and I think that there probably are, and I think that as we go forward, things do, it just becomes, not always, by any means. I mean, um, I, we have a lot of fun. When I'm on the wards, it's exhausting, but I have a lot of fun because we're, we're doing a lot of that. But, but I think in terms of kind of inculcating that perspective on, in the whole system, there probably are changes that need to be made. For example, you know, first and second, and a little bit of third year, you've got you guys seeing these things called standardized patients. Never, never get Dr. Fitzgerald going about standardized. <laughs> she has written essays about standardized patients, 
and and I mean the thing I like about working with standardized patients is you know they're they they're usually young and healthy and they can move around and follow commands pretty easily and such and they're not sick and in a bed and unable to sit up to listen to their lungs or whatever. There's lots of and it's easier to have a large number of students go through stations with standardized patients. It's like it's like flight simulator training for pilots. Mm -hmm. It's an important part of training, but it's not as realistic as flying the actual plane. So I think that one of the things I've thought about in the past is that having more real patient exposure for students would probably be a even better way to educate them. Like demonstrating that, mm. you know, it could be a pa like the patients that some of my lecturers brought to medical school lectures when I was a, a medical student the first two years, man, they are like stuck in mm -hmm. my brain. Like, I mean, they had uh, this one woman who had been complaining of difficulty swallowing for about a year and it turned out she had myasthenia gravis. Mm -hmm. And like, I just remember him interviewing her in front of, you know, 140 medical, 130 medical students about. Her, how she was diagnosed and the symptoms that she had and what she had now and how they diagnosed it. And it just was so memorable. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they brought in another patient with uh, Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. Mm -hmm. Like, how often do you see that? I just saw the first case since then <laughs> the other day yeah. in the hospital here. Right. So, so I think that potentially is another good way mm. to get students and residents exposed more to, to disease and patients as human beings. Yeah. Going back to my other question, how how should students, and I mean, we're always going to be students, so third year med students, fourth year med students and beyond, how do we practice and try to perfect our physical exam skills and the things that are really important about third year and, and beyond? Um, yeah, and I guess that comes back to the second question you mm -hmm. asked earlier in terms of how I try and work on those skills. Um, and so I think that the physical exam is one of the most poorly taught things across the spectrum in American medical schools. This is UC Davis, and we're working on it, and some schools are working on it, and but it's it's just sort of one of those things that's really unfortunately faded a bit in terms of the curriculum and getting people good at it. And so what what's happened is it's created this culture where junior faculty don't feel confident teaching at the bedside or going over physical exam skills because they weren't adequately taught those skills. So who are they to teach? Mm -hmm. I mean, I was at Boston University giving grand rounds last summer and, and this guy who had been practicing for like 34 years, who's one of the deans, was asking me about bedside teaching and you know he's like, you know, I just don't feel comfortable doing it. Really? <laughs> and I'm like, huh. you have, you've been teaching <laughs> yeah. for 34 years. And he, and huh. he was a really super smart guy. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a statement about, you know, if you got a dean level guy yeah. who's a good teacher, you know, has won all these teaching awards and such. But I think that, so what I do, I'll just start with what I do to try and make my physical exam skills better. And I think it's starting with the observation mm -hmm. part. It's just looking more, trying to look more carefully at patients. And it could be everything from are they in pain or not, which we're kind of, that's emphasized, mm -hmm. to looking at their hands, you know, like their skin, um, and looking at how they're breathing. Uh, and 
And so I think the more you look at them, and I think that's one of the reasons I really like bedside presentations, because mm -hmm. while you know Maya's presenting at the bedside, mm -hmm. I'm listening to her, but I'm studying the patient. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like this efficiency thing almost. So I'll pick things up that she hasn't picked up because she's been busy kind of do collecting her data and going through the motions and such. Um, so I think that uh, that's one way I, I try and improve it is just by looking at, at, at people more carefully. Um, and then I think when you're not even seeing patients, like, you know, UC Davis Medical Center, for example, or Fresno Medical Center, or the VA, I mean, just seeing family members or guests in the hospital, walking in the hallway, it's it's really fun to study them <laughs> and see, like, this morning I was walking through the hall on my way to morning report, and I mm -hmm. saw this this guy who works for the hospital pushing a cart. He's one of the custodians, mm -hmm. and I'm like, that guy's been smoking at least 50 years because he had smoker's face. You yeah, know, the wrinkly. The wrinkly face. And, <laughs> and so um, there's that studying people all the time, sort of full-time, yeah. but then there's also looking at the bedside. And then I, I think it, the more fine-tuned type things, like hearing murmurs, mm -hmm. um, I think that is just practice. And I think that one of, so the tricks that I use are, number one, um, I think about what disease the patient has. Mm -hmm. So if the patient has, uh, I don't know, a, a huge pulmonary embolus, I go in the room if I know the diagnosis before I get in there. If I know they have a huge pulmonary embolus, I know I'm going to be listening for a tricuspid regurge murmur because of high right-sided pressures in the backflow causing regurgitation. And sometimes I hear it and sometimes I don't. But I walk in the room and I already know what specifically I'm looking for. Um, if it's a dialysis patient, they usually have some of them have whopping mitral regurgitation because they get volume overloaded and that dilates the anal line of the mitral valve. So I think about what the patient has. Now, a novice, a third-year student, isn't necessarily going to be able to do that because they don't have that experience. But then the issue becomes taking the time to like listen to the lungs and the heart very carefully. And then after listening to the heart, like it seems like a rather large number of our patients have had echoes sometime in the last 10 years. <laughs> could have been six months ago, could have been the day before, but not looking at the echo results before you listen and then going and looking at the echo results. And they don't have to go look at the echo. I mean, that would be above and beyond, and that's a lot of time. But, but just checking to see, like, did the patient have the MR I thought I heard or the TR I thought I heard or, you know, aortic insufficiency every once in a while, I'll be like, God, I swear I hear aortic insufficiency. And then when I look at the echo report from a month or a year ago, and I see that they had aortic insufficiency, I'll be like, gosh, that, that was a good call, Paul. <laughs> You're <laughs> really good at that. Or, or I'll be like, oh, they didn't have what I thought they had. Look, they had pulmonic insufficiency. I didn't even think of that, you know? So I think that's a good way to tweak it because it's, it's, it's like, you know, sometimes you can have a very loud murmur that's not a high-grade murmur on the echo, but the point is that it's there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, they'll be calling a lot of regurgitation or stenosis that you don't, you even go back after you look at the echo results and you listen again. So the trick is listen carefully, look at echo report, and go back. And with the students, they have the advantage of seeing the patient every day, so they can keep listening, listening, and turn off the TV, close the door, you know, you can't silence the patient in the bed next door. You know, that's trickier. But 
make the room as quiet as possible, close their eyes to decrease stimulation, and then listen and do that every day. Because if they just like, oh, I don't hear it, it becomes, I, I never heard it, I never will hear it. And I think students have to think it's like a continuous process improvement kind of thing. So that, that's how I do it. And then the other things, if they have an unusual rash, I try and figure it out. And then the other big thing, I think, in terms of improving not only physical diagnosis skills, but diagnostic skills in general, is if you order a test, what's it going to show? And if you think, like, it's not going to show anything, I'm just getting it to make sure they don't have X. But I, I think there's a 95% chance that this test is going to be negative, but it's important for the patient to get it. Fine. If you predict it's not going to show anything, or like I think they're going to have a huge liver mass, or I think they're going to have cholecystitis, whatever it is, that improves diagnostic skills because you're thinking more. You're thinking beyond the test, and therefore you're even thinking to the next test. What if this one's negative? What will I do next? So that's another really great way. To do it. And then the, the final thing I do, and I usually push my teams when I have time to, to tell me if they're ordering like an MRI, what do you think it's going to show? And the other one is, if you call a consultant, try and predict what they're going to recommend that you do and what they're going to say. So if they come by and, you know, you, you predict, like, I think they're going to tell us to change antibiotics to three drugs from our one drug. Or I think they're going to tell us to narrow the penicillin. Um, or they're going to tell us to use ceftriaxone because then the patient can go home and it's easier to manage home IV antibiotics if it's dosed less frequently. Predict that or predict what next test they're going to recommend. And I think all those things help you learn more and ultimately make you a better diagnostician. Well, any further words of wisdom for the incoming third years and all those other med students listening to this? Um, no, I think that um, to look at the year as like an adventure, like they're setting off because it's so, I mean, they've had some experience, you know, with diagnosing and seeing patients in the student-run clinic. Some of them have worked in the healthcare field before they got to medical school. But they've been, like, kind of in this sort of stagnant, not, I don't mean that in a negative way, but a it's a bubble, it's bubble of, mm -hmm. of first and second year. And I think if they look at it as an adventure, like they're going to meet all kinds of people, <laughs> in, you know, across the spectrum. I think if they go into it thinking like everyone they meet is going to be a fantastic teacher, is going to engage them and take them under their wing, then they're going to be disappointed. I think if they go into it thinking that if they're self-motivated and they want to get better and they enjoy talking to patients and uh, trying to help people, that it's going to be a great adventure and it's going to be super duper fun, um, but to be flexible and to be motivated in terms of being curious about patients, Agreed. as well as the other people they work with. You know, what are the residents? How do they get to where they are? Mm -hmm. The attendants and so forth. It's all about attitude. I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Lyle.